listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, Episode 89, Interview with Christopher Knights. Welcome to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, Don Bluth, and everything in between. My name is Mason Smith, and I am your host for today, and I'm here with my two lovely co-hosts, um... Two lovely co-hosts. Oh, crap. Oh, they're not here on this episode. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Rotoscopers fans, this is a historical episode. Uh, I am flying solo, as they say. Um, on this episode, unfortunately, uh, Morgan couldn't make it. Neither could Chelsea. And so um, I picked up a Skype call recorder, and I uh, was working with uh, Christopher Knights uh, from DreamWorks, who I, uh, I'm interviewing on this episode and uh so please excuse me if i sound awkward or if if it gets a little weird because i'm kind of i'm kind of flying into unknown territories like i'm not gonna lie i i really miss having chelsea and morgan but (laughs) not that this is going to be a regular thing like i definitely do not plan on doing solo episodes you know because i i love the triumvirate of myself morgan and chelsea and uh, mostly because they don't ramble on about dumb things like i like i'm doing now (laughs) and so uh yeah special treat for you guys today um kind of a surprise interview uh with this guy christopher knights from dreamworks you know him best uh from from one of the most memorable comedic uh quartets of all time in animation and those are the penguins from madagascar that's right christopher knights is the voice of private the penguin (laughs) Oh my gosh, I chuckle just thinking about it, because Private's like, he's like the cutest and cuddliest one, but he's also the kind of naive one, you know what I mean? And so, fascinating interview with this guy, because um, I didn't know this after getting a hold of him, but um, he started out as a as a camera operator for Amblimation, for those old 2D films, like We're Back and Balto, and uh, he eventually moved on uh, to work for DreamWorks as a CG animation editor, and that is a fascinating job, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, we're going to talk about his old days at Amblimation. We're going to talk about um, his voice work for Private and uh, lots of fun stuff, and uh, we're also going to uh, go a little bit into uh, the Mumbai musical uh, which was shut down by, well, unfortunately, it was, uh, uh, they halted production for it at DreamWorks, and we're going to uh, hear his remarks on that. But, man, just a fascinating interview, and um, I want to thank Christopher for being on the show. But, yeah, let's not waste any more time, and we're going to launch right into this awesome interview with Christopher Knights. We are the real Brady, Brady Bros. Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg, and uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of The Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why The Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are The Real Brady Bros. Hi, 
Hi, Mason. Thanks, thanks a lot for inviting me on. And um, firstly, I would just like to say you guys do an amazing job, and it really is quite an honor to be asked onto your show. Oh, shucks. <clears throat> it is really an honor having you, sir, and, uh, yeah, we appreciate <laughs> it. So I take it from your accent that you're from Alabama. Yeah, that's right. I was born and bred <laughs> and spent all, all my life down south there. Uh, so, um, yeah, I grew up in London, um, spent 22 years there, came over here with the Amblimation crew that was being relocated to start DreamWorks back in January of 96. Yeah. And um, the original plan was just to, you know, I had an 18-month contract to work on Prince of Egypt, and the original plan was just to come up over what that contract and um you know see a bit of the world and then go home again and uh, here i am 19 years later uh an american citizen living the dream in california all right man congrats so yeah that's right um all right so you having listened having listened to all these episodes you know you're not gonna get out of catching fire we're gonna do this that's fine it I'm is ready. a it is a painful part of these interviews that everyone has to go through because we're the podcast that answers the hard ask the hard questions well, no, it, it's funny because um, having listened to the other ones, like they're never they're never as catch and fire as you want them to be. And I, I've Edit, listened. Editing to them. helps a lot. Exactly, and I, I've listened and I thought, well, how will I answer that question? Let me get ready with my answers so that we can just, you know, bounce off each other back and forth and try and make it quick fire like you want it to be. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do this. I've I've adapted some of them to be more DreamWorks centric for you. Um, oh. So uh, we'll uh, we'll keep you on your toes. Let's make sure the questions aren't too hot then. All right. <laughs> all right. I'm ready. Well then, how about a quick round of catch and fire? Catch and fire? You mean me? You're the only one with enough courage. Yeah, Chris, first animated movie you remember seeing? Uh, it wasn't fully animated, but it was Pete's Dragon, and I fell in love with it. Wow, oh, man. Yeah. Uh, as an American, rednecks really are like that out in, <laughs> down in the South. Anyway, <laughs> haven't, haven't bathed in three months. Exactly. Anyway, favorite cartoon growing up? Did you guys get Dogtanyan and the Three Musketeers? Or... D'Artagnan and the Three Musketeers. Yeah, it might have been a French cartoon that got dubbed into English, but I remember that as a kid growing up. I used to love that one. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. All right, favorite animated movie of all time. This is the big one. Uh, you know what? Just because it's so close to my heart, I have to say Shrek. It's been four and a half years working on it. Got to, you know, become an editor through that process and a voice actor through that process. So Shrek, definitely. I keep petitioning for a Shrek episode, and we're going to have it soon, so stay tuned. Don't worry. I, I love Shrek as one of my, like, top five. It's a, no, it's not a, even lying. It's a seminal uh, animated movie, you know, um, one of the one of the first fully CG, but also um, the first one to win an animated Oscar. Yeah, good point. And like Ricky Bobby said, if you aren't first, you're last. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. We got the uh, first one. Let's see. Favorite animator slash artist? Oh, wow. Someone so you really many, admire. So many of them. And, you know, I'm not a traditional animation nerdy fan type guy. Sure. Um, so please excuse me, but um, Christoph Sarand. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. Okay, classic animation, like 2D hand-drawn or CG? Both. I think there's a market for both of them. I think it's a shame that we have put all of our 
chips into the one basket and gone fully CG. Yeah. Um, I think the traditional style and some of the stuff that some of the stuff that guys can do with a pencil is so much more interesting and fascinating to what people can do with a computer. Yeah. You know so, what? Uh, you know, going back to, um, you know, the decision to, you know, to shut down PDI and then all these, um, uh, all these postponements, I was really disappointed about me and my shadow. Like that just sounded so cool. Absolutely. You know, what? I'd completely forgotten about that movie. It's been a couple of years since that one went away, but what they were doing technically on that one was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So yeah, I think there's a marketplace for both 2d and 3d. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Would you choose Disney or Pixar? I prefer the Pixar movies to what Disney specifically are doing. I'm, I'm more an action movie kind of guy, so Incredibles rather than princess movies. Oh Pixar. man, when Pixar. Incredible when Incredibles two comes out, man, I'm gonna be I'm gonna watch yeah. it like ten times. <laughs> All right, Studio Leica or Studio Ghibli? You know Miyazaki, formerly Miyazaki. Oh Ghibli, absolutely. All right. I, uh, you know what? Can I change my answer to my favorite animated movie of all time? Sure. Uh, my Neighbor Totoro. Oh, man, that one's so good. My Neighbor Totoro is one that I watched as a dad with both of my girls as they grew up. And so, that, yeah, that one's that one's a good one. <laughs> all right. Disneyland, Anaheim, or Disney World? Uh, world, by a country mile. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> There's just so much more to do. Yeah. And all the other all the other parks around it as well, you know. Yeah, well, definitely. Absolutely. Heroes or villains in animation? Uh, villains. Okay. Uh, let's see. Alex, Marty, or Melman? <laughs> Marty. All right. I love is he, Marty. Is he black with white stripes or white with black stripes? No one knows. I went to the San Diego Zoo a couple of weeks ago, and I I still couldn't figure it out. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, Okay, favorite little-known obscure animated character? Oh, my goodness. Um, oh and, my goodness. and he can't say private anymore because he's not obscure. They got their own movie. No, I, I'm, I'm, you've stumped me. I'm, I, I'm kind of thinking of um, one of the little mice in Cinderella. Oh, yeah, um, there's Gus Gus and then Jacques. Gus Gus, yeah. He's, he's great. Big fan of Gus Gus. All right. <laughs> All right. Do you like uh, people in animated films or anthropomorphic animals? Uh, both. I, you know, I've done I've done movies with both. You know, we're we're back was a crossover between people and dinosaurs, so it doesn't get more diverse than that. All right. All oh, right. And I, are we done? When we're done, I wanna I wanna just say something about we're back. Yeah. But next Absol question. Absolutely. Songs yeah. or no songs in animation? Uh, uh, it all depends on the style of the movie. I mean, I was working on the Mumbai musical, so we had songs in there and they were relevant to the story and they were a very big part of the movie. And so if they're done right, definitely songs. All right. Here's a big one. Who would win in a fight? King Fergus from Brave or Stoic the Vast from How to Train Your uh, Dragon? Because I've got Scottish blood in my veins, I would have to say Stoic, definitely. Stoic is a mighty man. Absolutely. He has the girth of a Viking barge. You don't, you don't mess with the Scots, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Hmm. Ah, uh, here's one. Here's my final question. Who's better, Dave or King Julian? Both gigantic personalities. You know what? I'm going to have to say Julian, but it's only because I had the privilege of seeing and hearing 
Sasha Baron Cohen recording some of his early sessions. And that guy is absolutely phenomenal. He's just absolutely phenomenal. He's such a, such a great talent. And he went off on this thing. He was in session, you know, he was doing everything that we were asking him to do, you know, dialogue-wise. And that. and then, you know, they were st- it was one of the early sessions, so they were developing the character. And he went off on this thing about Julian being a recording artist on the island of Madagascar. <laughs> and he was... He, he broke into song and he did this whole stick for about 10 minutes and he did some fantastic stuff in that, um, in those early sessions and, and that's why he became Julian and made that character such a great character for the, for the Madagascar films. Yeah, man. All right. Well, thanks for sticking, sticking through our catching fire. I know it's a, it's a tough gauntlet for people to run through, but you did just fine. Thank you. No, it was fun. Out of 52! Well done! Yeah, I was looking over, I, I guess, your IMDb page and some of the other stuff that you've done, and you have been around for a long time. I think your first gig was like a um, like a, a line line checker for uh, We're Back with Amblimation? Well, yeah, I was, uh, I was hired as a, as a show or a studio runner, like a PA. Yeah. And so, you know, I was photocopying, making tea, or doing any menial tasks that any of the uh, animators at the studio required of me, including, <laughs> you know, dropping clothes into the um, dry cleaners and picking up lunch for people here and there. And um, after three months of that, I had the opportunity to um, start working my way up through the studio. And, you know, um, there was a position available on the line testing department. And, yeah, it just really went from there. I'd always kind of really wanted to be a cameraman and be behind you know, behind the camera and do more of the technical side of stuff. And so to have that opportunity after just three months at the studio was, was great. And I jumped at it and have worked my way up through the ranks to where I am today. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So um, you got to work with Steve Hickner on a lot of those yeah. movies, I'm, I'm assuming. He's kind of a, I don't know, he's kind of a legend around with the rotoscoper because he was, he was one of our first big interviews that led to a lot of things. Absolutely, and one of the one of the nicest, sweetest guys you will meet in the oh, business. Yeah. Uh, who, um, you know, he's done over the years. He's he, he's kept me working basically. You know, in between feature films, when there have been little downtime periods at DreamWorks, and you know, if it wasn't for Steve and his short projects that we worked on together, um, me as his editor and him directing, um, you know, I may not may not be in animation as it is today. You know, but. Um, we did the we did the Book of Dragons, which was a short that went on the DVD, and we came in and and you know we had to rework that when we started work uh, when we got that one, and then earlier this year we did um, the Got Your Six PSA that went out um, around Veterans Day, um, which was based on the Penguins, and that was a trip, you know, because that was the first time I actually got to be an editor and a voice actor in the same project. <laughs> All right. And so I had carte blanche with my own dialogue and it was quite funny because there were a couple of times where Steve would say, you know, I'd, I'd go through and pick all the best takes that, that I preferred, the, how I wanted myself to sound. And Steve would come in and say, is there a different read of that line? And I'd just be like, no, Steve, that's the best there is. 
And I'm like, oh, come on, Chris, let's have a listen to the others. I'm like, no, Steve, that's the best there is. And all right, I gave in, played some of the other takes for him. And he said, you know what? You picked the best one in the first place. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, with the other guys, with, um, with Skipper, Tom McGrath and uh, Kowalski, Chris Miller, um, you know, we were, we'd just have a lot of fun with that kind of stuff. The Penguins are such great characters. And, you know, like I say, being an editor and an actor in the same thing was, um, a little bit of a trip, but we, we, we got around it and, you know, it was a lot of fun. And I think that PSA had quite, quite good feedback. So we did our job. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So you were, um, you were like a camera operator for those 2d films like Balto, Prince of Egypt. So, yeah, so that was an interesting time as well, because when I got to the studio, I think they were mid production on we're back. So that was my first job in the animation business um, or first movie, at least, and um, we were still shooting 35 mil camera. Yeah. But um, I guess it was toward the end of that production that they teamed up with um, AFT, who were based in San Diego, that did um, colorization of old black and white movies. And um, we brought their technology in, basically, because they decided we were going to go digital with our cameras and we were going to colorize everything after the fact so there was no more you know cell animation or whatever well none of it was cell animation at that time they'd always planned on doing um you know the painting by numbers coloring everything after they've scanned it and um yeah we i mean it was one of the first movies to switch over to digital scanning as they used to call it i mean you didn't even really get the uh proper title of being a camera operator because it was um you know, it was just a, a down shooter camera on a fixed axis that didn't move and on a flatbed camera. And you would just put the yeah, every piece, every frame of the movie is on a separate piece of paper. Yeah. Um, yeah. Based on how they work their bonus schemes at Amblimation. So all, all the anim, every single character was on a separate piece, even in even in the within a scene together. If there are three or four characters on screen in a. 50 foot scene every single one of them was on a separate piece of paper so that 50 foot scene became a 150 foot scene because you had to scan every all three of those levels you know and then you had all the effects levels and stuff on top of that so we ran cameras 24 hours a day um and we're back i think it was two 12 hour shifts and then when we went on to balto three eight hour shifts and uh, um we never wanted the night shift. It was it was not fun. Wow. <laughs> it was fun. It was it was a lot of learning and you know um, you know working with great people in the camera department there. Yeah. Um, all, all still friends today, you know. Um, so we made the most of it. But you know having to be having to be on a twelve hour night shift starting at seven p.m. on a Friday night and your friends are all going out and doing stuff and you want to hang out with them, you know. I, I have to admit I did call in sick a couple of times. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you know, I, I'm curious about the transition that you must have had going from like a 2D camera operator for film and then moving into CG uh, with DreamWorks where it's, it's all digital and then, uh, you know, not necessarily operating the camera anymore, but editing. So how what was that transition like? So, so like I mentioned earlier, I moved to um, America in 96. I guess uh, we finished Balto in 95. That one came out, uh, I think, later at the end of 95 and and they basically the way it worked was they were starting the studio jeffrey came over and met 
all the departments as a group, like individual department meetings at a hotel in London and pitched Prince of Egypt to us. And I think by that point, we had all signed our contracts, those of us that were going to be moving. And that was kind of like, a, you know, this is what you're going to be working on when you get there. So they needed a crew. You know, they needed people to fill every position at the studio. They weren't able to, you know, go to the other bigger animation studios and take the talent and the and the technical staff, um, you know, to start DreamWorks. I guess there would have been a conflict of interest there or whatever. So there was a good, sizable amount of people that came over from Emblemation because there was a crew over there, obviously, that was going to be at a studio that it was shutting down. And um, came over as a Prince of Egypt digital scan operator. So in between Balto and Prince of Egypt, we'd literally gone from shoot, shooting on the fixed aspect um, down shooter to glorified photocopying is the only way you really can describe it. So once again, you'd get handed a, a piece of, you know, a stack of paper with all the hand-drawn animation on it. He would just run it through a machine, and it got it got to the point where the machine feeders were automatic, and so um, I was doing that for about six months. And I have to admit, it was mind-numbingly boring. There wasn't much to learn, and um, I was questioning to myself, why did I move to America to run a photocopy machine? You know, and yeah. um, the opportunity was given to me by a very dear friend, uh, Sim Evan Jones, who was the um, lead editor on Shrek to go and join him as the apprentice editor in his editorial department and um, you know he mentored me for four and a half years whilst we worked um, on on Shrek together and you know both in Glendale and up at PDI and um, yeah I went from apprentice editor to a film assistant um, because even though everything was digital, we were shooting out to 35 mil still, all the finished product, and that was interesting and, and different and cut my fingers a few times splicing 35 mil together, but, you know, it makes you the person you are today. And so in the meantime, I was making sure I learned as much of the Avid software and inner workings of the editorial department as I possibly could, and he once described me as a sponge for information, which yeah. I, I've never forgotten. And I, I always took on, you know, no matter what the challenge was, however menial or, or, or difficult it may be. And, you know, just worked my way up through the different departments and learned the computer because I knew everything was going to be going digital. 35 mil was going away. You know, the track reading had died. You know, tra traditional track, track reading had died. Um, and so... It was an interesting time crossing over because um, Shrek was, well, yeah, Shrek was really one of the first movies where we still, even though we were fully um, fully digital, we were still shooting out to 35 mil to finish the finish the job off. And you know, nowadays everything just goes on a hard drive and prints um, computer files off a hard drive. Yeah, awesome. And so now, um, so you did, uh, you've done editing from like, like you said, Shrek up until like Mega Minds. That was 2010. And well, here's a funny thing. I haven't ever stopped editing. Um, okay. <laughs> I just, I've been, I've been at, you know, still remain at DreamWorks, even though 
my last uh, feature credit is Megamind in 2010. So after Megamind finished, I was I mentioned the Booger Dragons earlier. Uh, oh right, um, yeah. So that was one of those uh, that's one of those moments where I could have possibly left DreamWorks, but Steve had a project that he um, wanted me to work on with him, and so um, yeah, Booger Dragons took about nine months and started in the fall of 2010 through to the summer of 2011. And then I did some miscellaneous, you know, consumer products, marketing type stuff for the guys at DreamWorks. Um, I can't remember what movie was finishing, but, you know, in between projects, they've always kept me busy with that kind of thing, cutting commercials and little TV spots and stuff. Um, And then in the January of 2012, um, the editor that I've worked with since um, the end of Shrek. So Sim, Sim went off to go and be the editor for um, Andrew Anderson on the Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe series. And since then, so I've worked with Mike Andrews. And, you know, again, he's mentored me, taken me under his wing, and I've kind of become his right-hand man over the years. And so, you know, we had worked on all the Shrek films and Megamind together. And we went on to Trolls. I don't know if you guys know too much about that one, but... Yeah, we knew a little bit about it. There was a series of books called The Bromeliad that was written by Terry Pratchett. Uh, a series of three books that DreamWorks had optioned the rights two years ago. Um, and I think it took ten years between them optioning the rights to actually going into production on a story based on those characters. And uh, during the year that we were on that movie... Um, they decided that they wanted to incorporate the little troll doll figures um, to be the main characters of that film rather than the, you know, designed characters that we were working with that the, you know, the art department had been doing. Um, so there was a switch over there in the middle of the uh, production or the story development phase. And we went back to kind of reworking the script and stuff and, and so there was going to be some downtime at the end of 2012, and then that was the year on the, that was the year on um, Trolls done, and then we went from there to start of 2013. And as a crew, thankfully, we all moved over, and we've just completed two years of the Monkeys of Mumbai musical movie, which is completely different and interesting. Yeah. Um, we can get into talking more about that in a bit if you want. But oh yeah, yeah, we've done two two years of story on that one, and then unfortunately that was one of the victims of the changes that DreamWorks is going through now, and they will not be moving forward with production on that film. Yeah. So it's not that I haven't been editing in the last three years; it's just I haven't been lucky enough to work on a movie that's finishing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Yeah. That was a very long-winded way of answering that question, wasn't it? But No, no, we love long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Okay, so for those of us who don't have, like, any clue, like, how important is the editorial department at DreamWorks, like, in film production? It's funny you should ask that because we learned whilst up at PDI doing Shrek um, just how important the people in the Silicon Valley, the tech guys, um how important they they value or they uh, envisage our work to be because obviously down in down in LA everything is movie orientated and and you know a very large percent of the industry works in 
in that city. So we moved up to the, you know, the dot-com um, industry home base of the Silicon Valley, and we were making a movie. You know, we were out of our element as far as a uh, as far as a film studio goes. And the editorial department at the building we were at at PDI was literally across the corridor from editorial was the um, render farm, which had all the servers, all the computers in there where they were rendering all the frames for the movie. And they'd have these quite regular um, tour, tours come through. And there was a, there was a closed um, door down at the end of the corridor and you'd hear it, hear the door open and the tour guide would say, well, now take you into editorial here and, and um, show you this, this area. And they'd walk down the corridor and the render farm was like a big open glass wall. Basically you could see all the machines in there and our editing rooms, there were just doorways where you could stick your head in and just see what the editors were doing. And so the tour, the tour guide, the script was pretty much on our right. We see, we have uh, the editorial department this is where they add sound to the movies. And on our left is the render farm. This is where they make the film. And we would always laugh because, you know, as editors, we do so much more than just adding sound to picture. And, and um, you know, a lot of these people in the, no disrespect to anyone who gave a tour at PDI, but um, they didn't give them a very good script for the tour. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> we would always laugh and cry and chuckle to ourselves, you know, when we would hear that that line. This is where they put they added sound because, you know, we were we were working fourteen, sixteen hour days on track, and there was a, there was a lot of work being done, and it was so much more than just adding sound. It, it was it's unbelievable. You know, you have you're trying you're having to sculpt a story all the time. Yeah, and and. You know, you, you're working with every single twenty one twenty fourth of a of a second is important to everything that you're doing. You know, and so uh, for it to be so uh, blatantly or flippantly disregarded as just adding sound to picture is is something that we we always used to find quite uh, comical. Yeah. Well, describe for me like a typical day in the editorial department at DreamWorks. Like, what's your day in day out job editing? Uh, so, I mean, it depends on what phase of production you're in. In the story development production, and it would always, of course, depend on what your deadlines are and um, where you left off the night before. But we we normally, um, you know, start around nine o'clock. Um, coffee bit of a chat as a department you know um divide up the daily um duties to everybody and then you know once we get into it you know you for the you know for the two years of uh the monkey musical movie we're cutting storyboards you know so you'd receive a, a receive a new sequence uh, you know the night before or, or that morning and you just get into trying to build the sequence, you know, first pass as best you possibly can. And, um, you know, uh, just lock yourself away in a, in a dark room and get your head down and, and try and build, build a movie, you know, and, and searching for dialogue, um, reads that fit the tone of the, uh, of the scene that you're trying to build. And then, 
you know, we do all our own sound effects and music, um, temp stuff for animation because we need to try and make it play as it would the finished article, um, you know, so that when we have work in progress screenings with the executives, you know, they have a more full idea um, of what the what the scenes are or what the movie is. So, yeah, so start early, work all day, order dinner, <laughs> work all night, go home, sleep, <laughs> come back, start again. I mean, unfortunately, the, there isn't really anything typical to any one day because every day is different. You know, in the early stages of, of story development, you're also um, trying to cast the parts, and that's always quite a big deal, you know, getting casting clips of various different actors from various different movies and building little radio play sequences with them, reading against each other, you know, lead male, lead uh, female, a villain, you know, and you're trying to see, you're, you know, giving yourself a, a, an idea of what these guys are going to sound like together should they get cast for parts in your film. You know, so in the early stages of production, there's, there's that involved. And then, you know, we'll get um, concept, conceptual art from the uh, art department. And, you know, we'll have to cut little show reels together of the, of the artwork of the films that we're working on because they'll have little showcase screenings for producers or, or executives just to show where the movie is at um, at any certain time. And... You know, so we put art reels together and cut them with music. And then with the with the monkeys thing, um, it was quite typical, for want of a better word, that we had a um, Bollywood movies running on a TV in our department all day long, 24-7, just streaming off of Netflix. Nice. Yeah, and it was really interesting because they have a very specific style to them, in my opinion. Um, a lot of them, well, they either do straight out comedy or action, but a lot of the time within the action, it's very comedic as well. And they'll just, you know, do what they, they break all the rules as far as movie making goes again, in my opinion. Um, yeah, they break all the rules and they, they make no apology for stopping for song for 10 minutes or however long it may be, but they, you know, they break out into these huge elaborate dance numbers and the whole, the whole cast, the, the, the uh, heroes and the villains of any particular piece will all get together and start singing a song and dancing. And <laughs> a lot of the time, you know, rain falling and every, everyone on set is absolutely soaking wet. Or there's even a couple that they, they have um, scenes in the sea and there's like a big dance number and a crowd of like 20, 30 actors all standing in the sea, dancing <laughs> to this, to this, whatever the song is, this, <laughs> you know, that's and awesome. So it, it's a very, it, yeah, it's a very different way of making films. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if DreamWorks was, um, I don't think DreamWorks wanted to make a, an out and out comedy like that particularly, but also, um, we kind of we were basing our version of this monkey movie on a um, it had a religious through line. Um, there's an Indian story called the Ramana Ramana or something Ramana. I'm oh, sorry, I'm not getting the name right, but anyway. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. 
it's ha- Hanuman and and Ravana is the uh, the demon god. And once you start going to that place with religious tones and themes in your movies and certainly basing a story around that, your kind of hands are tied a little bit with um, your artistic interpretation of that story. You don't, you're not as free to do whatever it is that you want to do um, story-wise because you have to kind of stay true to what is written you know it, it, it would be remiss of us as a as a western company to make an indian themed movie and change up their you know you don't want to turn their religious story into an out and out slapstick comedy key keystone cops type thing <laughs> sure you know so you've got to stay true to that and i think you know ultimately um unfortunately that was probably somewhat responsible for the downfall of that film. And, you know, it's a, certainly a shame that it won't see the light of day in the version that we were making because it was certainly very different and, you know, there was a, there was a level of entertainment there for, for people. But, you know, I think the hardest part of all of it through the, uh, through the development that we, you know, as far as we got was how are we going to market this film to a wider audience and actually, you know, ultimately make money from it one day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I've seen about I've seen one Bollywood film in my life. It was called Rowdy Rothor, and it was exactly as you described Bollywood. It was like three and a half hours long. It had extremely bloody and tense action sequences, but also random dance numbers, like with very little time between shifting gears. Absolutely, and they just they come they come out of no, nowhere. <laughs> they, they last forever, and you're like. Okay, what's the song about exactly? We just someone just got slaughtered, you know. <laughs> they, just, they just chopped someone up into pieces, and now uh, we're singing about it, you know. Right, it's good. man. And in some ways, it's great to have that kind of freedom to just do whatever it is that you want to do. Well, yeah, that's why we were so excited about uh, Mumbai Musical when we first heard about it, because we were like, "Man, this is going to be so different! Like, they can do anything with this." Yes, yes. And when we first heard about it, you know, when when I first heard of the concept. I thought it was going to be a very different movie to the one that we started making. Um, but, you know, one thing led to another and we find ourselves, you know, with no monkey musical coming out, but maybe one day they'll re- rekindle a similar idea or try something a bit different and try and reach out to that audience again. Cause there's certainly, uh, there certainly is a, an audience there. It's just a question of how, how wide it is in the Western world, you know? Yeah, yeah. It'd be great if one day some, some of the bigger studios took more chances with stories like that because, you know, a lot of the time we, we, we're now getting into, you know, please feed us an original idea territory with a lot of our animated movies, you know. We've, sure. we've had the We've had the superheroes. We've had the princesses. You know, we've had the, the, the witches and the, you know, it, it, it's, it's the hardest part of it is coming up with that original idea that is going to sell, which, you know, when we get to talking about penguins, you know, it's just, <laughs> it, it, it's such a shame that that movie didn't reach a bigger audience domestically. I mean, I think worldwide it's going to probably hit about 350 million total. Yeah. You know, and in in whose world is that kind of money ever a um, a failure? You know, right? But domestically, 
made its money back and you know unfortunately DreamWorks is having to take a write-off on that film as well and you know um I, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me because I, I don't understand what what went wrong or, or why people didn't go out and see that film. Well, I thought it was a charming idea, um, you know, getting the because like when Madagascar first came out, like sure, like Alex and Marty and all that stuff was really funny. But it was these like four little penguins who were voiced by people that nobody knew that were just this runaway hit. And then, of course, you got um, uh, King Julian. So you had like these three different stories in Madagascar that people could just like relate to and like laugh at and stuff. And, but man, the penguins, like when I first got out of the theater, I was like, I got to go get a penguin stuffed animal for my girlfriend. Like this is back in the day, you know, and, um, just adorable. And, uh, like we would just laugh all the way for the car because of the penguins. And then, um, the idea of having, you know, like the backstory and then having them like really become secret agents. And then, um, I would have, I thought it was a hilarious idea. And then, um, I really thought that domestically um, it would have banked on um, Senor Cumberbatch, who is extremely yeah. popular these days. Yes, and um, there are a few other other stars and in, and in, um, in the within that um, professional spy group that that classifies the head of yeah Northwind that one. Um, but I thought that you know the combination of having the backstory and having the adorable baby penguins at the beginning, and then having um, Cumberbatch. Um, I don't know, man. Either we give it time or um, I don't know, because I, I know that some animated films that don't do well domestically are smash hits internationally. And I don't know well, how that works. It seems to be where we're at with this one. But it's funny you should make that point about um, people not knowing who we were as voice you know, actors. Yeah. Um, quick story from the from my experience at the premiere. OK, in New York. So for Penguins, right? For Penguins. Yeah. So, you know, and the first time ever I'm actually at one of these events as talent in inverted commas um, or parentheses, as you guys like to say. So um, we do the screening. We get taken over to the to the press event, which is at uh, Bryant Park in, in New York. And, um, you know, there's a press line. And basically it was a case of if I wanted to do anything, on the press line, I could. I mean, I don't think I was uh, obliged to if I wasn't comfortable with it. And certainly being on camera and doing that kind of stuff isn't natural to me, you know. But um, we get to the event and I walk in. There's no one there to kind of show me the way. And I bumped into a couple of guys from DreamWorks Marketing and I said, you know, do do I need to do anything? Do you want me to? And he's like, well, why don't you go up and take a picture with the penguin? Because at the start of the press line, they had the peng- the the, the, guy the guys, in- guys in the suits. Exactly. Go up and take a picture. And then, you know, if you want to do any interviews, you know, come and talk to DreamWorks TV at least. You know, okay, I'll do that. Fine. So stepping up onto the stairs there to go and have my picture taken with the penguin, there's a lady who's organizing people in turn going up. And so I went up to her and I said, look, I've been told to come up and take a picture with the penguin, you know. And she looked at me, she's like, so who are you? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Chris Knight's voice of private. <laughs> and she's like, oh, great, 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 you know, come on up. So I finally <laughs> make it up to the penguin. And there's the, the, the uh, photo journalists are all, are all there with their, you know, ready, ready for the people to step up to the penguin. There's one guy in a group of about 20 taking a picture 
And so I'm standing there <laughs> smiling for everybody else, and I'm thinking, okay, when the one guy clears, everybody, when he gets out of the way, everybody else will start taking their pictures. Well, the one guy got out of the way, and no one else was taking pictures at all. And I'm standing there like a complete lemon with my arm around this penguin. Oh, no. Waiting for these pictures to get taken, and it's just not happening. And, you know, inside I'm just dying for a moment because I'm like, I don't know what to do <laughs> myself at this point. And so I just kind of shuffled off out of the way. And, um, you know, I don't think I, – I think the one picture that the guy took of me with the penguin did actually make it out onto the Internet. And then through the course of the afternoon – I ended up going back up on the on the carpet with um, Chris Miller, who was Kowalski. Yeah. We took a picture with the penguin together, and then I got another picture when I went up with my family um, later on in the evening. So they did end up taking some photos, but the first initial experience of standing in front of all these guys, waiting for them to press their gutter <laughs> buttons and not doing so was probably one of the uh, worst moments of I wasn't. I wasn't humiliated. I won't go so far to say that, but it was just very embarrassing. <laughs> nothing like a nothing like an awkward red carpet moment, man. Well, that led me to that led me to. Um, I was doing a. I was doing one interview with a lady that I. I don't think it ever got out because I was just stumbling and bumbling my way through her questions. But one of her questions was, you know, what's the best part of doing a voice for these movies? And I said, you know what? Actually, it's that nobody knows who I am. Because I get to have the the anonymity of, um, you know, going going to the microphone and doing my thing, getting getting all the glory of being private penguin, you know, and then I can walk down the street and go to the supermarket and I'm not being hassled and bothered because I'm not sure I would be completely comfortable with that, you know. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, um, penguins had. John Malkovich and Benedict Cumberbatch, like they really can't go to the market <laughs> without exactly. being exactly. And and so um, we were in the we were in the hotel um, leading up to the event. We had a couple of nights at the hotel before the the event on the Sunday, and I think it was the Friday night. And John Malkovich was standing on the other side of the foyer, um, obviously waiting for someone to to meet him so they could go for dinner or whatever it was they were doing. On me, and, and obviously people were recognizing him, and they, they, he wasn't left alone for a moment. Like people were walking over and saying hi, and you know, I don't think people went so far as to ask for um, photographs with him. But yeah, he he was, you know, though though you you have to be, you know, very patient. I guess I think is the right way of saying it with a lot of people because they just get into your personal space a lot of the time, and they don't consider that you have a life outside of being the guy that they see on camera all the time, you know, so it must be, must be awkward and uncomfortable for them to have to do that a lot. And I'm just glad I don't, I don't have to, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a cool life. Like on the, on the podcast, we frequently talk about like, man, it must be great to be like a voice actor for animation because people know you as the character, but, but like you said, you can still walk down the street or, or go to a screening of your movie and, and not be harassed by people unless they're like oh. hardcore creepy fans who know who you are. Oh my goodness. It was so, so there was, it was the best moment, the best moment of the weekend in New York for me was we're leaving the, um, so as the, as the afternoon event progressed and we're, you know, Tom and Chris and I were at the, doing the press line. Tom had to do a lot more, um, interview stuff than either Chris or I. 
but um, it ended up at the end of the evening, the three of us got to take our picture with Benedict. And then kind of after that, I, when he left, it was kind of over. And so we were all walking out together, Tom, Chris and I, and our respective, my family, and Chris had his family, and Tom had his girlfriend with him. And we were all walking out, and um, there were a couple of autograph hunters who ran up to Tom and basically produced stacks of photographs from these bags that they were holding for him to sign. And this was happening like 10 yards in front of us when Chris and I kind of looked at each other. And I was thinking, oh, well, maybe someone was going to ask us for, for an autograph. And, <laughs> and we just kept walking slowly. And as we got past these guys, neither of them, you know, turned to us and said, hey, do you mind signing some of these for us? And we were, we were able to just walk past Tom as he was stuck there signing stuff and go and get in our cars and back to the hotel. So that, that was, for me, that was a hysterical moment that, that will never be forgotten because, you know, there was the opportunity for the autograph hunters there, but they never took it. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. while you were recording for Penguins, did, cause I know, um, like Surf's Up by Sony, they did a lot of the, they tried to get all of the voice cast together in one room. But yeah. did you did you get to record sessions with John Malkovich and Benedict Cumberbatch? No, no, no and very, very rarely do we ever on any movie at DreamWorks do we ever have two actors in the same room at the same time, let alone a whole cast. Really, it's very different. Yeah, it's very different to the TV world because in the TV world they'll they'll write a script and get everybody together and they come in and they read through the script and that's pretty much the episode done. You know, they'll go back and pick up the odd take here and there. But with features, it's not the same at all, Cause just because of everybody's schedules, really. And oh, yeah, I imagine. So you just have to get all these people, you know, as and when they're available to you. Um, you know, and very rarely are they ever in the same place at, at the same time. And, you know, even with Tom and Chris and I um, being on campus at DreamWorks, um, you know, they... Very rarely, actually, through the through the production stage of it, we weren't in the same room at the same time recording ever. Wow, um, it's it's all separate. Yeah, and so I mean that's what. So here's another little story for you about the pro uh, process of making the penguins thing. You know, we we go in and we will read the line typically five to ten times. You know, at at worst, if the directors haven't got what they want from you in the first or second take. You know, or Disney do this thing where they have like three takes. If they don't get what they want, they ask for more. Dreamers, you know, we, I, I, cause I know that I normally just work like that. So there's a line in the movie where, um, private saves the North wind from the, they're all on strapped onto that machine. That's got like the grinders and the spikes and stuff. And they're about to get, um, you know, done in by this machine because um, Dave has captured them all and Private comes in the room and, and he presses the button to stop the machine and he saves the North Wind. And I had done that line probably five to ten times in an original recording session. And I guess what happened is they, they had a screening with Jeffrey um, he wasn't happy with the take and he asked for a specific take um, for that line. So I had to do a re-record. So 
I was working on monkeys uh, in my edit room. I get a phone call from the recording studio. Chris, have you got five minutes to run down and re-record a line for us? We've got, a, we've got one we need to pick up. And of course, yeah, I'll be right there. So run downstairs to the recording studio and everything that we did um, recording wise with the directors, Simon and Eric and producer Lara, it was all uh, video conference because they're up at PDI and we're in Glendale, right? So they're on the video feed on the monitor in the recording studio and so I walk in, you know, what do you need guys? Well we Chris, we need you to re record the line, um I pushed the button. Okay, what didn't what 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 was it about it that, you know Oh, we just need you to try something different. Okay. All right, fine. So you jump in, do five or ten takes for them. I mean maybe not that many right off the bat, but then Simon gave some direction. And Chrissy, can you do a bit like this? So, all right, mate, you know, five, six more takes. Then Eric gave some direction. Okay, I'll do it like that now. And so, you know, put a little pause in before button. So I pushed a button, you know, okay. Can you make the pause longer, shorter? Do it like, like, all three of them gave me direction maybe two or three times. And it got to the point where I just stopped and I said, guys, am I being punked right now? Like, <laughs> are we are we in a session of? Is there a separate camera here shooting me? Are you, you, are you going for the record of the one line that's been recorded the most times in an animated feature film or something? Because just at this point, tell me what you want. Just give me a line read because I've done it, you know, however many times. And they said, oh, it's just um, Jeffrey had a very specific read he wanted. So I said, okay, just tell me what. Yes, and so they did it. And I'm like, well, that sounds kind of like the first one I did when they came in the room just now, you know. So I do it again happily, and I went away, and I, I got in touch with the assistant editor up at PDI, um, John Dorst, and I said to him a couple of days later, I said, Johnny, how many, how many takes of that line was there? And he started laughing. He said, 64. <laughs> <laughs> that I think that will be a record for years to come that I won't – ever break that I said that line I pushed the button 64 times so what ended up in the movie <laughs> what ended up in the movie those three words or four words is uh, probably the combination of three or four different takes cut together to get the perfect read that Jeffrey was happy with well see now when I watch the watch that scene I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and think about this conversation and be like absolutely that was the line when you buy the DVD see buy the DVD and then wind forward to that part if you don't want to watch the rest of it, and then you'll you'll know the, the uh, story behind that line. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sorry for that you had to stay in it for so long. That's a funny story. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It, 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 that's how it goes. That's how we work. You know. You know what they should do for the video release? They should have like a featurette where they just yeah, sh- show you and all those takes <laughs> trying that line over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, to and, see how hard know, they work to get that line just right. Absolutely. Yeah, they did. So we, you know, as we got to finishing the movie, you do some a little bit of um, EPK, like making of type stuff, and uh, that was the only time that uh, Tom and Chris and Conrad Vernon, who was Rico, and I were all in the room at the same time. They had us read a couple of scenes through all together. There was talk actually. Um, back in the summer that we were going to do a table read at Comic-Con and we kind of, I guess it was a rehearsal for want of a better word um, at DreamWorks with um, some of the storyboard artists filled in for those 
other actors, but Tom and Chris and I were there as the Penguins, and we read through the script, and for one reason or another, the plan for the table read at, at Comic-Con would have, um, went away, but that would have been really cool to do that with John Malkovich and uh, Benedict. and Oh, that would have been Ken, cool. Yeah, and Annette Mahendra, those guys are all fantastic, so... Yeah, that would, it's a shame that never came to be, but there you go. Yeah. Okay, so... All right, so I've been following the Penguins since uh, Madagascar. And yeah. start, starting at the very beginning of, like, your reign as Private the Penguin, like, how did you get the role in the first place? Because, like, like we discussed, like, completely unknown voice actors. In fact, yeah. they were... Uh, you had uh, uh, Tom McGrath, who was uh, the co-director, and then yeah. you had uh, Chris Miller, who was, like, a story artist at the time. And then uh, yeah. I don't I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Rico was originally uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. He did he did do that vocalization I think in the first movie. Yeah. Um, but subsequently, actually, to his credit, he said he didn't want to do it. Like <laughs> someone someone else should have that part, you know. Sure. Um, just because it's probably you know. Let's, let's get down to nuts and bolts of it. Jeffrey makes enough money; he doesn't need the the, the work. Oh, sure. <laughs> so give it to someone who's who's got who's making a livelihood with being a voice actor. Yeah. Cool. But so, yeah, so so how private? How did private come about? Is so I have to go back once again to my days as a an assistant editor on Shrek One. Um, you know, and so as you know, in in animation, we start everything with storyboards, and we need scratch temp dialogue to go with those storyboards so that we can build our sequences and see if we even have a movie worth working on. And so um, I was asked to do scratch for one of the blind mice and Thelonious, the executioner. Three, pick number three, my lord. Pick number three, my lord, yeah. That's me. So, yeah, did those two... Did those two scratch things, and over the course of time, you know, I, I guess the directors, Andrew and Ricky, um, came to like what I had done, and um, I got credited with the two parts, the two roles in that movie, and so I had to join SAG, um, Screen Actors Guild Union, right off the bat, because I, I guess you get one credit, Grace, and then once you get a second uh, screen credit as an actor you have to join so because I had the two in the first movie um, I went from there so finished that and then when Shrek 1 finished in 2001 that came out in 2001 then we rolled straight onto the first Madagascar and the Penguins weren't originally in that story if I'm correct and Tom it was Tom who boarded a sequence with them uh, with these characters that Eric Darnell had been working on for a different movie that uh, um, subsequently wasn't going to be getting made. And, you know, between them, I guess they talked about taking those characters and working them into Madagascar. And Tom pitched this sequence and, you know, one thing led to another and they needed dialogue. Um, you know, I was on the list of people who could do scratch for the studio at the time. And, um, you know, I went in, uh, went into the studio and they said, "Hey, can you do the can you do the little cute and cuddly penguin for us?" And I, yeah, that'd be great. You know, why not? You know, what more direction is there than that? And they said, "Pretty much that's it. He's the cute and cuddly one. He's the heart of the team. You know, um, kind of a little bit naive, and um, that really is is the the basis of how Private was born. 
um, pitched up the voice a little bit, uh, toned down the, the Cockney in the accent a little bit to try and make myself a little bit more understandable. But you never know, you know, like with the like with the 64 uh, takes of that one line I talked about, um, you never know if you're giving them what they want necessarily, you know, and and so you just read the lines as best you possibly can. Like, um, what's one of the lines he did in the first one? It's, um, it's no good, Skipper, I don't know the codes. So... You know, I did that ten or fifteen <laughs> times, just so just so they've got coverage. Because you know, I I was always not sure if my voice wasn't was going to stay in the first Shrek movie. And and over the course of time, I've learned that until that sound mix is finished on the stage and they're print mastering all the audio, your lines of dialogue could get switched out for someone else. Um, it's that easy in animation. Uh, so I never take anything for granted, and even. Even through the making of the Penguin movie, you know, um, I, I, you know, you, you're never, you're never sure if you give them what you, what they want. You know, they, they always have other options out there. And you know, in the case of the Penguins, it's, it's the, you know, the guys from the TV cast. And you know, thankfully, they, they, they went with us this time. You know, if there was to be another one, who knows what they would choose to do? But I never take any of it for granted. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, here's a personal question of mine about Private. So why is he the only one with a British accent? <laughs> Good question. I guess he's from a different part of Antarctica to the others or something. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. And how how did he end up in – maybe he came – from like the London Zoo and was transferred into New York. That's a good story to go with. Oh maybe, yeah, it is one. Maybe he started out in the London Zoo. They needed penguin in New York, so. Yeah, and then we we don't know Rico's nationality, you know, besides no. his uh, his weird Rico language. He's just a grunter. Yep. So he could be he could be from anywhere. He could be from anywhere. He could be one of those Argentine penguins down in Tierra del Fuego. <laughs> yes, he could indeed, and you don't need to understand what they're saying to be able to laugh at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, how did so you you mentioned that's really fascinating that you had to join the um, uh, the uh, the union, yeah. Right, right after your right after Madagascar, or no, no, no right after Shrek, right? Doing right after Shrek, yeah, yeah, and the three blind mice. Right. Um, so how did voicing the penguins evolve over time? Like, did you all have to take like? voice lessons or did you you know was it did it just come natural and you just came in and recorded when they needed you yeah that 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 is it in a nutshell to be honest mason i mean there was there's no uh science to it on my part whatsoever you know i'd never never done an acting class in my life and some would say that shows <laughs> um and you know um it just it was just it, it you just go in and do whatever they want when they call you and hope that it stays in the movie, you know, or the TV show or the shorts, you know? Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure what else to say on that one. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, did you, um, did you do the TV show, uh, that was on Nickelodeon? Did you do private on that one? Uh, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> no, unfortunately that was one of the, um, biggest disappointments in my 21 years or no where are we 22 years 23 years something like that in the industry the 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 moment that i was sat down by the executive that had to break the news 
news to me that my part was being recast for the TV show absolutely hit me like a train and completely broke my heart because I was so looking forward to being in a TV show. You've got to remember my kids, you know, my first daughter was two weeks old when I started working on the first track. Um, they're now 18 and 15 now, but they have kind of grown up with my characters as well. If that's the right way of putting it, you know, they, they've enjoyed their dad being, a voice in these movies and you know they've been able to show off a little bit to their friends at school <laughs> not too much but just enough and yeah so we actually got to record the pilot for the tv show um originally and you know first of all there was there's this buzz going around the studio there's going to be a tv show the penguins in it like great i'm one of the penguins and, you know there's no way they're not going to use me you all know? right and then get called in to do the pilot and fantastic what a great experience and you know working with the guys at Nickelodeon all those other fantastic voice actors from the cast are there you know that, that have had long careers and doing what they do as voice actors and it was just a fantastic experience I, I loved every minute of it and then you know you get the word that Nickelodeon are going to pick up the show and they've got options you know two seasons already or whatever and we're like great this is for Fantastic news, and then they say a meeting pops up on my calendar with the uh, with one of the DreamWorks executives. I'm like, this is it. I'm going in to negotiate my rate. You know, this is they're going to offer me a deal, and walk in the room, and it's like, you know, Chris, we got some bad news for you. Oh really? Yeah, we decided to uh, recast your part for the TV show. And at that moment, I, I don't know, I don't know what the expression on my face was, but um, I, I, I was absolutely devastated. Oh, man. But it came because everybody, you know, I, I um, can't remember exactly what year it was that they, they started production on the TV show, but I've been at DreamWorks all that time. I've got friends all over the studio, you know, every, you know, I know a lot of people there. And having to walk around there, you know, coming back from that meeting back into the editorial department where I work and with my close-knit group of guys and friends that I work with on we were on I think Megamind at the time so it must have been 2008 or 9 something like that maybe even earlier and they said how did it go how did it go how did it go and I'm like they're recasting me and they're like no they can't do that to you you're the you know you're the only British one who yeah they're going with a sound-alike guy and I, you know that was it. I mean, it, it it was a very very sad moment. But you know, but they recast you know, some of the other cast, didn't they? Uh, Chris Miller definitely, uh, Kowalski, and, and you know, um, I think John DiMaggio got to be Rico. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, Tom Tom's still skipper through it all, and so he should be because I I think you know a, a sound alike in that part just wouldn't work whatsoever tom is that character you know yeah absolutely <laughs> he's really made that his own you know as have chris miller and i in our roles but you know i guess they were easier to replace for the studio and you know who knows who knows what the the, the big wigs talked about the day they made that decision but um, yeah we found ourselves not in the not in the tv show but you know we've had to do we we've got to do all the movies um all the subsequent shorts and um, the Penguin movie. So, you know, I, I, my disappointment has been countered by the fact that I was actually used for the for the feature. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, wow. You know what? My, I think my favorite Penguins short is the Christmas caper right after the first movie. That was the first one. The first a, short yeah. This is a part where, um, oh, who is it? Is it is it Skipper or Rico that swallows all the peppermints and then they use him as like a peppermint machine gun <laughs> to get no, rid of that? Rico. Yeah, that sounds like something Rico would do. But... Yeah. yeah <laughs> and then, that was another um, another short when when Private gets to save the day. He seems to have a recurring theme a lot of the time in the in the roles that I've had a chance to play. Is that he's uh, always coming up with the with the answers. Like they they all take him uh, so much for granted that he's just a cute and cuddly one. But he actually plays quite a big part in in all of these things. You know. Yeah. Well, that was a big. That was a big theme in, in Penguins was that Private felt um, like he wasn't useful or that he wasn't as important as the other team members who were all, you know, hoo-ha, we can karate chop people and stuff. And so, and how how was it with that experience of, like, expanding his role into, into you know, ultimately becoming, like, a hero and a more important character in the end? It was fantastic to have that opportunity to, to actually get my teeth into a part where, you know, he's not just um, playing the naive uh, cute and cuddly one. Although that is very much, a, you know, still part of his character. That, that just that he's able to have some dialogue and, and um, you know, there's that conversation that he has with Skipper where he says, you, you know, I've, it's my turn. I'm the I'm the secret weapon. I've got to sacrifice myself. You know, um, that was that was great. And it's a different a different slightly different level of acting for me, if you like, because I've even though there's been a lot of heart in that character through the years, he's never really had to um, put himself out there on that level and give himself up for the rest of the team. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was a really, really fun experience and, you know, something that I'll, I'll never forget. I just, I'm, I'm actually currently looking for an agent. So if anybody out there listening uh, wants to get in touch with me, <laughs> um, I'd love to do a bit more different, different stuff as well. So, Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, you'd be surprised who who listens to the to the podcast. Oh, you know what? It, it, what has fascinated me this week? I've listened to five of your episodes, and it's a shame. Holy girls... cow! That's an overdose, man. Well, I listened to Glenn Keane, and then obviously Steve, because um, I, you know, have worked so closely with him over the last twenty-two years or so, um, and then. And I listen to all the episodes that relate to movies that I've worked on. So We're Back, Balto, and I listened to Madagascar yesterday. And um, didn't get around to Prince of Egypt before this morning. But, um, yeah, and just the fact that you guys, you're huge super animation fans, which is just fantastic. And and there is, you know, I, I have a Twitter account and do in the making of the or the last few weeks of the um, Penguin movie, you know, started getting getting uh, requests to follow other fans, and I've started chatting with a couple of guys in Japan that you know don't know if they're going to get to see the movie or not because they don't have a release date there yet, and you know they're devastated by that that they might not get a chance to see it. Oh wow! Yeah, and it's just it's really really interesting to see how diverse the fan base is. Excuse me, a sec. Hey, 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 T. I need to be quiet, mate. I'm recording still. Sorry. <laughs> Tell so, them it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, but you know, shut up. <laughs> um, 
Where was I? Yeah, just talking about um, how widespread and diverse the fan base is, and it's just phenomenal to be able to chat with people in in Japan that know your characters, and you know, all over the world. These these you know they released in thirty different countries or something like that. So you know that that many people know your you, you as that actor and or as that voice. It's just um, really humbling and and just really cool to be a part of. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool, man. So, I guess rounding down to like our last couple of questions, like which Madagascar production out of you know all the all the films, you know, features, shorts, and, and maybe games that the Penguins have been in, which one was the most fun voicing for? Or do you, or do you have a favorite? It's it is very hard to pick because you know I'm proud and happy to be a part of every one of them. Um, but I think the first one, um, because that's the one where people fell in love with that character, you know, um, that's the most satisfying to me. Um, you know, and we developed, we developed those characters, you know, in the, in the recording of it or, you know, over the course of the production there, um, you know, and he's, he started out maybe not necessarily talking the way he does now if that's the right way of putting it. But, you know, we, we evolved the characters through the course of that movie to, to be what ended up on the screen. So for me, that's the most, that's the most satisfying anyway, that people fell in love with that character from the first movie and the subsequent movies and shorts and, and the TV show have all kind of added to the um, fan base spreading and, and loving the characters even more. All right. Yeah. So, I guess my final one of my final questions is like after so many years in the industry, do you consider yourself now more of a voice actor or more of a, like a production worker slash artist? Um, it's a good question because having had my little uh, flirt with stardom <laughs> with the with the um, you know the premiere in New York and all all that kind of stuff and getting a little taste for what actors go through um that was fun i wanted i want to do more of that um i really enjoyed it but but editing definitely pays my bills <laughs> um so that's the that's the bread and butter right there and the the voice acting is very much a secondary privilege that i get to be a part of very very thankfully um but yeah no i consider myself an editor that does a little bit of voice acting rather than a voice actor that gets to edit yeah. Well, all right. Well, man, this I th- I just think it's so cool talking to you because you have this kind of weird. It's not weird, but you have this fun <laughs> dichotomy of doing the voice acting. You know, which kind of started out not as an accident, but um, you know, like you said, a scratch audio, and then also having this you know steady career as an editor. So I just yeah. think I think that's really cool, and and um, this has been a good episode because I don't think I've ever um, interviewed someone who was a uh, an editor for animation, and then uh, you're my first uh, voice actor that I've. I've interviewed, I think. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, you know, props to DreamWorks for taking a chance on, on some guys that don't normally get to do this kind of stuff. You know, and we're not, we're not full-time actors, but we, you know, are able to play the characters that they ask us to play. And so, you know, thanks to everybody there that makes those decisions and allows us to do that as well. You yeah. Know? Well, we just want to say that we're, we were sorry to hear about all the layoffs and we hope you guys are, doing all right and recovering yeah it's it's a really really 
sad and disheartening time, but shout to everybody at PDI. Um, they actually closed their doors yesterday, and uh, it really was. Like I've, I've been at DreamWorks 19 years now. I've seen every single one of Jeffrey's public addresses to the studio, and I have never seen him as emotional, either good or bad, as he was last week when he made that announcement that they were closing PDI. So, and and you could, I mean, there was a an audible gasp of, you know, 1,800 people in Glendale and, and 400 people at PDI, you know, collectively, and it was almost like the air came out of the balloon instantly, and they haven't started reinflating that balloon yet. So, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you know, like I said earlier, they are a very big part of um, where I'm at as a voice actor. You know, they have they've had to animate all of my characters pretty much across the board, from from the mice to Thelonious to the penguins. So, you know, I have a lot of lot of love and um, time for every single person at PDI. But I did just want to double back to that comment about. Oh, um, we're back because in the in the in the episode, I can't remember if it was Chelsea or Morgan, but one of them said um, they didn't get the point of we're back or something along those lines, and not many people did get the point of it. But oh, the question was something like, uh, um, why did why did they ever make this movie? Or whose idea was it to make this film? Having been involved in it, I can actually I don't know if it's an exclusive, but it was Spielberg's idea to make back because it was supposed to be the Jurassic Park for the little younger audience so Jurassic Park was supposed to come out and be the thing for for the teenagers and then here's we're back for the kids and I guess the kids weren't that interested so there you go all right Chris well hey thank you so much for being on the show and uh we we want to know that we appreciate uh, your work as as uh, as private but uh, man I've learned a lot about the process of editing animated movies and um, your fascinating long career in animation. So, just thank you for having for being on the show. Oh, you're very welcome, Mason. And is you know once again, I'm very uh, privileged and honored and humbled to be asked by you guys to come on and be a part of what you're doing because it's it's fantastic. And keep up the good work, you guys. All right, Chris. Well, we'll let you go, but uh, you have a good one and best of luck to you. And once again, big shout out to everyone at PDI. Oh, absolutely. Thanks a lot. 